Welcome to the Rich Room Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Sobel. Where you can master the art of enriching your life. What kind of kindergarten shit is this? And finding a path to financial freedom. Who the fuck was supposed to teach me how to do my taxes? So sit back, relax, and step into the Rich Room. You know I can't help these cause they know they can never touch these. Hello, bitches. Welcome to The Rich Room. I'm your host, Lindsay Sobel, and I would like to take the time to apologize for another late episode. I'm stretched a little thin right now, but I'm getting a handle on it. We are going to dive right into our rich bitch shit today. And basically, the first part of this episode is rich bitch tips on tips on tips. We are doing it, y'all. I'm talking about getting our finances in fucking order. Finding a way to that pot of gold that we thought a college degree would get us, uh, but boy, were we fooled. I've had my own issues with money and being independent. I had my daughter when I was 16. Y'all know that. Obviously, I did not have an income at that time, so my family helped me out financially and also helped me with caring for Madison while I went to college and law school. And as those of you with children know, kids are fucking expensive. It's a good thing that they are so damn cute because they are pricey. Being 16, my family paid for everything for my daughter and for me too because I didn't have an income. All of which I am internally grateful for and I recognize my privilege there. Along with that help though came an overwhelming feeling of guilt. I felt guilty that my family had to do this. I felt ashamed that I couldn't do it myself. People would always come up to me too like cautioning me. You are so very lucky that your family is helping you. It's so funny what people feel comfortable saying to you. So I made the decision to become an attorney when I was a teenager. And I made that decision out of necessity. Yes, Madison has a father, but I never, ever counted him into the equation money-wise. Call it forethought, call it intuition, but I just made the decision very early on that I would be the breadwinner myself and that I would never have to rely on another person to raise her. I've said this before, in my 17-year-old brain, the only professions out there that would make a lot of money in my mind were doctor and lawyer. That was my perception at the time, and I didn't know any better. What I didn't realize when I decided to become an attorney was, one, I wasn't going to make near the amount of money I thought I was going to. Two, I would barely have any free time. And three, how political and fucked up law offices are. Well, the ones that I worked in. One year of tuition at my law school was $40,000. Just tuition, not housing, not books, not food, just tuition for one year. Pretty steep, huh? Oh, it's definitely gone up too. It's definitely gone up. I was at my first law job for a little over a year and a half, and I started out making $40,000. You don't need to be good at math to know that it's impossible to pay student loans and live as a human being and raise a child in New Orleans on $40,000. My salary did go up from there. I learned how to ask for a raise, 
got a shit ton of experience being the only attorney who could type and got the fuck out of there. From there, I went to three big law firms where the pay was much better and I learned the meaning of a billable requirement. See, first job didn't have billable requirements, but I think that was part of the owner's like scheme to pay so little. Well, when my ass tracked my billable hours at the first job and saw how much I was working and then multiplied those hours by my billable rate, I was being paid a very, very small fraction of what I was earning. And I didn't get any benefits, no health insurance. And the office wasn't really a looker. In fact, when the first time I saw it, I wanted to run away, if that tells you anything. When I was there, I think there were like three or four attorneys who came and quit because it was such an awful place to work. I think one guy only stayed there one week. So you can imagine my desperation to leave. My daughter, for like the first 10 years of her life, was on Medicaid. And I was very grateful for the ability to get Medicaid because I had no money. And she needed health care. I get especially passionate when there are arguments about cutting Medicaid. I won't go into that right now, but I wanted to share that with y'all. Well, when I got this first job... She lost her Medicaid because I made too much money. And they weren't even offering health insurance. Man, ain't that a bitch? I don't even remember what I did for health insurance at the time. There's no way that I went without, but I really can't remember. I was so thankful for that second job at a big law firm that pulled me out of the first job. So fucking grateful. At that first job, I cried nearly every single day. I would leave the office and sit at a park in my car and eat the lunch that I had packed for myself and just cry. It was awful. And my new job had health insurance? Fucking finally got some health insurance. I had to wait three months for a probationary period, but still, I eventually got health insurance and I was actually very proud of myself. That second job allowed me to be financially independent. There was so much confidence and pride that came with supporting myself. I was so proud of myself for leveling up and getting to that job. I did everything in my fucking power to get that job. I went and got my tarot cards read. I went and got a Grigri bag blessed by a priestess. I put, I actually had the Grigri bag on my person on the left side while I had my interviews. And your girl got the job. I made so many close friends at that job, people with who I am very, very close with today. That job was very hard to leave, but I didn't know how to set boundaries at that time, and I was a super people pleaser, and I really wanted people to like me. So I said yes to everything, all work assignments, all new partners to work with. I barely even needed an assistant because I could just did everything myself and took everything on. And let me tell you what, I was very good at it. I think we had to get 2,100 billable hours each year, which I'm pretty damn sure I met and exceeded each year that I was there. For those of y'all who don't know, a billable hour is how a lot of attorneys get paid. So if you have to get 2,100 hours in one year and there are 52 weeks in a year, we divide 2,100 by 52 weeks and we get a weekly billable hour requirement of 40.38. We'll say 40 to keep it clean. I'm sure y'all are thinking, well, hold up. That doesn't seem too bad. That's a full-time job. That's what everyone works. Fair enough. 
So 40 hours in a week comes out to eight billable hours per day. Not so bad when you first look at it. But a billable hour does not mean the time you spent at work. Attorneys don't clock in. A billable hour is for approved billable work that the client has agreed to pay for. And sometimes you're doing work the client won't pay for. Oh, like paralegal work and legal assistant work. So if you're taking everything on, you're doing the job of three people and not getting paid for it. So eight hours per day means eight hours per day of billable work. That doesn't include lunch breaks, potty breaks, mental breaks, when your kid is sick, when your kid forgets something at home and needs you to bring it to school. I think my daughter, even on the last day of senior year, forgot something at home and needed me to bring it to her. She forgot her college t-shirt at home that she was supposed to wear that day, and I had to bring it on the last day of school. Damn. Oh, and billable hours certainly don't account for any sick days you might have, or if you want to take a vacation, or if you want to get married, or if a family member passes away, or if you have a little minty bee. So if any of these, well, actually, when any of these real-life things happen to you, which they are bound to because you are a human and not a robot, you have to make up the hours on the weekends, at night, and in the early morning. I worked in law I worked in law firms for almost a decade and I don't think there was one vacation that I didn't work on including my honeymoon. And now it makes me wonder what I've taught my daughter through my actions. The billable hour work is also not consistent amongst firms. I worked at four different firms and the rules were different at each place. I'm sure that's also pretty annoying for clients as well. I think the law profession needs an overhaul. I think there needs to be a way to account for AI, and I think the billable structure doesn't seem to work for anyone but the people who take the profits. What happens if you don't meet your billable hour requirement, you might ask? Well, I'm sure it varies by firm, but in my experience, you don't get a bonus. Well, actually, you usually don't get a bonus for meeting the requirement, but really for exceeding the requirement by like 100 hours or so. I knew a girl who got 200 hours over her requirement. That's like a month and a half of extra work. And she got a few thousand dollars for a bonus. She was pissed as fuck and said that she would have rather had her 200 hours back. She quit shortly thereafter, as did I. It's very important to know your worth. Also, a major, major issue with this career path was that I had a salary and a discretionary bonus and that was it. I don't mean to sound ungrateful, but my time was maxed out. There was no other way I could earn money. I was capped at my salary. Even if I did more work and build more hours, there was no guarantee I would get a bonus. And the bonuses did not match up to compensate for the extra time I spent working. Even though I was not happy working in a law firm, I was really, really reluctant to resign for being an attorney and spend time taking care of myself. Well, first, I didn't even realize that I wasn't taking care of myself. I knew something was wrong because I was sad all the time, crying all the time, having panic attacks daily. But I thought the problem was external. I thought it was my job. Well, it kind of was my job because my entire legal career, I put my files before myself. Even when my body was like failing from stress, there was a time where I couldn't even type. It's like my hands wouldn't work. 
So what did I do? I bought a dictation software so I could keep working. That is fucking crazy to me when I reflect back on it. I thought my sadness was because of my relationship too, and don't get me wrong, that definitely contributed to it. But again, I was neglecting myself to take care of my relationship and my partner. Bad. Neglecting myself. Bad. I was so delusional. I was in the Nile deep in denial. I just kept thinking, if I keep pushing forward, we will be okay. I'm a very persistent person. I contribute a lot of my success to being persistent, but persistence doesn't really work in a relationship because in a relationship, just because you keep trying doesn't mean it's going to work out. And I did not want to give up my financial independence at all. Me resigning from my job meant that I would lose financial independence, something I had worked so fucking hard to achieve. I was so embarrassed and ashamed when I got my first lawyer job and couldn't even pay rent without help from my family. I kept thinking to myself, how the fuck did this happen? How is it allowed to pay someone so little who invested over $100,000 in a law degree? I had been duped. I had been bamboozled, y'all. And I'm not the only one, and I fucking know that, so thank you. Also, I just want to give a special thanks to any lawyers out there listening. Um, I know how valuable your time is, and the fact that you're spending some of your free, precious, very valuable time listening to my podcast, um, I'm fucking honored, so thank you. Back to resigning from my job. It was really my family who saw how bad my situation had gotten, And they told me that they would help me. And as much as I didn't want to, I knew I couldn't keep living the way I was living. I was going down a dark path real fucking fast. And honestly, I didn't have the time to work on myself or address any of my issues because the job was so demanding of my time. And I had created a habit where I put everything before myself. Every single day. So I allowed myself to accept the help. And for the very first time, maybe fucking ever, I chose myself. The funny thing there was that choosing myself did not feel good. I look back on it now and I'm like, I chose myself. Well, I can for sure see that now, but at the time, I felt like an absolute fucking failure. I felt like I was letting my family down as the primary breadwinner. I felt like I was letting my clients down at work. I felt like I was letting my boss down. It felt wrong to choose myself. It felt like I was taking many, many steps back. I felt uncomfortable choosing myself. I did not like feeling vulnerable and like I needed other people to help me. I had made myself a very reliable person and I was so disappointed that I was the one now saying, I need some help. But I'm glad I did it. And that decision to choose myself, as unnatural as it felt, was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. So even though it took me some time, I've leaned in to letting my family help me and now 
I'm very determined to create a successful business and get the fuck back on my own two feet. Which prompted me to read books, to take classes, and figure out where the fuck I went wrong and how the fuck I'm supposed to do this. I fully admit that I am not educated on great money practices, and I'm fully committing to changing that and implementing those practices in my life. Which brings me to the fabulous Vivian too. She's on social media as Your Rich BFF, and she's written a book called Rich AF, or As Fuck. <laughs> In Rich AF, Vivian Tu shares how she cracked the code to thinking like a rich person, dispensing fresh, no BS advice, and busting tired old myths. Because, spoiler alert, the lattes aren't the reason you can't afford to buy a house, millennial. Throughout the book, Vivian discusses tips and trips to maximize your earnings, whether you're at a 9 to 5 or hustling to be your own boss, Overcome investing anxiety to secure wealth for you, your kids, your kids' kids, and beyond. And understand the power of different saving accounts and where exactly to stash your cash. And shake that ass. I'm just kidding. That's not in the book. That was just for me. Like I said, this book and this discussion is specifically geared towards millennials. I know I have some baby boomer Gen X listeners, so y'all bear with me. Y'all already got the money, so you don't need this, but happy to have y'all. Love you. God bless you. Chapter one touches on financial education in this day and age. I'll discuss half of chapter one today, and we'll take up the other half on the next episode. I'm going to go really slow, though, because, and I hope that's okay with you guys, because I tend to go too fast when I'm learning things, because I'm like, I get very excited, and speed kind of compromises comprehension. So I'm going to go slow. Most importantly, we don't learn this shit in school. So we really shouldn't feel so ashamed of our lack of financial knowledge. I'm talking to myself, really. The good thing, though, is that it's not too late to learn. I read some quote the other day, something to the effect of, literacy in this new age will be based on the ability to learn and unlearn. That really stuck with me. So I'm calling bullshit to those of you who say you can't teach an old dog new tricks because it's simply not true. People are only stuck and set in their ways if they choose to be. And a lot of people choose to stay stuck in their ways. But for those of us who want more, we got to unlearn bad patterns and habits and replace them with good ones. Rich AF tells us that we need to think like a rich person. Vivian too gives us a list of eight key characteristics of how rich people live that are probably not what you think. Now I'm going to take you through all eight of them. The first one, rich people are lazy. Well, what I think she means is that rich people are going to work smarter, not harder. Because as we've seen time and time again, Working harder does not translate to more money. These days, it's even harder to have multiple jobs because companies have implemented anti-moonlighting policies, meaning that employees aren't allowed to have side jobs or any outside work without running the risk of being fired. Last year, 
There was a lawyer in New York City who also ran a beauty blog and would post beauty-related content on her social media. She had a few deals with beauty brands to post on social media. Her firm found out and told her that she had to forego those brand deals in order to keep her job as an attorney. (laughs) Well, my girl said, deuces, bitches. So what are my options? Uh, work at a law firm that's probably not paying me enough anyways, or continue to pursue brand deals as a way of making a living regarding something I'm very passionate about. Alex, I'll take fuck off law firm for a thousand. Ma'am, R.I.P. Alex Trebek. So this story was crazy to me. People are trying to find ways to make their lives better and find additional streams of income, and it's a fireable offense at most jobs? I understand that a lawyer in a law firm should not be doing legal work outside the firm. There are ethical issues, conflict issues, all the things. But to have a beauty social media account that you get brand deals for? I don't see how that's a problem. Where do we draw the line on outside work? Does that include investing in a company? Does it include part ownership in a restaurant? Does it include any kind of private, non-law-related business someone might own? Does it include owning shares of stock in a company that is not your law firm? This doesn't make any sense to me. But what does make sense to me is that rich people have a mindset where they are going to work smarter and not harder. Number two, rich people don't just have higher paying jobs. A person who is, for example, a billionaire does not just get a paycheck every two weeks for $85 million and deposit that bitch in the bank account. If the billionaire is actively working, then they will draw a salary of some kind, which is probably pretty high. Although, the book gives an example regarding Mark Zuckerberg, who is the CEO of Meta. He notoriously only collects a $1 annual salary, but most of the money is actually tied up in assets with company stock bonds, mutual fund real estate, fine art, things like that. Bottom line, the way rich people make and have money is fundamentally different. Number three, rich people don't care about impressing you because rich people do not need to impress you. In this social media age where everyone is trying to one-up each other, it's really easy to see people post on social media and think, wow, they are wealthy. When rich people buy stuff, they don't just buy it because it's a luxury they want to enjoy. They buy it because it's something that's going to make them more money. In other words, they put the vast majority of their spending power into buying assets and stuff that makes them more money over time instead of liabilities and stuff that costs them more money over time. Take two assets, for example. We have a brand new Lamborghini car versus a shitty rundown duplex in a sketchy part of town. Rich people understand that they can take a shitty little duplex, invest some money for repairs, take a mortgage out on it because they have collateral of their primary residence and a high credit score. Then they can rent it out and use the rent payments to pay their mortgage. Eventually, they'll have a paid off mortgage and own the duplex outright without even having to pay out of their own pocket. Meanwhile, 
a shiny new Lambo that they could have bought is now worth 30 or 40% of the original purchase price. It definitely still looks good, but it's actually cost the buyer a lot more money. That shitty little duplex is earning money through rent, through appreciation of the property itself, and through freeing up cash to be invested. Now sure, the Lambo is flashy and impressive, and it looks good on Instagram, but the duplex will provide value almost indefinitely, and it's not something the rich person shows off in public. So rich people don't care what you think of them or whether they impress you. They're just happy to cash your rent checks and let you pay their mortgage. Number four, rich people have an abundance mindset. Contrast that with the more prevalent scarcity mindset, which is a constant feeling that we're never going to have enough money, that we're one slip up away from disaster, that we have to hoard every scrap of money that we can because we'll never get a second chance to earn it back. There are definitely some realities to a scarcity mindset, but that mindset has people at the bottom of the wealth pyramid fighting with each other. Rich people, on the other hand, know that they're going to be able to take care of their bills. They're going to be able to do what they want with their time instead of figuring out what they need to do to survive. I personally think changing your mindset about money is the most important part. I feel like there are even people who have money who still have the scarcity mindset. In all aspects of life, the mind is the greatest limitation. Your mindset is what determines where you're going in life. I truly believe that. No, I'm not saying to spend money that you don't have, but no matter what your circumstances, maybe you could start thinking about what is the next level I want to get to, or even what is the highest level I want to get to financially. And then once you have that goal in mind, you can start reverse engineering what it's going to take to get there. If y'all feel like sharing your goals with me, I would love to hear them. Please text me at 504-224-9919. Number five, rich people share, swap, and scratch each other's backs. So rich people think in terms of collaboration, not competition, and they love to share what they know with their friends and then know that their friends are going to share tips and tricks with them as well. Rich people think strategically and towards the future because at that level, success for one rich person generally means success for another rich person. Rising tides raises all ships. Number six, rich people think long term. They know that sometimes stuff takes time and they're happy to wait. Rich people have mastered delayed gratification. For example, a rich person has no problem investing money in an IRA, which stands for Individual Retirement Account. Sure, the money is off limits until they're like 60, but they know that because it's an investment account, it's likely going to earn them a decent percentage back each year. So the longer they wait, the more money they get when the time is up. I also think that rich people have better access to quality health care. They can also afford to buy organic food. Eating healthier food and having access to better health care and fitness options significantly increases a person's lifespan. 
There are many studies showing how a lower socioeconomic status affects a person's health poorly. Rich people statistically have better health, meaning they live longer. So these long-term investments don't seem attainable and they know they're going to be around when that investment pays out at 60 years old. Number seven, rich people love giving their money away and watching it come back. Rich people don't like having money just sit in a regular ass bank account. They want their money working for them and they are constantly asking themselves, how can I get this money flowing and growing and waste no time doing it? See, these are all foreign concepts to me that I am just now learning. But damn it, when I get to that point, I'm going to be so fucking smart with money. But I think it starts with being smart with my money now. And that's why I'm reading this book. Number eight. Now y'all don't get triggered. Rich people, especially the generations above us, have had it easier. It's important to note that in the past, it was a lot easier to get rich. Not for everyone, but there's a reason that a lot of rich people right now are from the generation above ours and the one above that. I read an article on Nasdaq.com which provided a breakdown of the wealth in the United States by generation. Baby boomers have 50% of the wealth. Damn. Gen X has 29.5% of the wealth. The silent generation has 11.9%. Millennials have 8.5%. Good God. And Gen Z has no percentage at all because it says there's insufficient data. I never heard of the silent generation before, so I had to look that up. According to study.com, The silent generation refers to a generation of people, also called traditionalists, who were born between 1928 and 1946. (laughs) Okay, I know that I'm supposed to probably feel not that great after seeing that my generation of millennials only have 8.5% of the wealth, but I'm not gonna lie, it kind of makes me feel better. Because there ain't no way y'all's parents ain't helping y'all too in some fucking capacity. Definitely no judgment from me, but the numbers don't lie. And that's why we're here though, y'all. We're gonna get this shit together. This is the time for self-education. This is the time to learn this shit and set your goals higher. I know that people think money is the major barrier to entry and launching your own business. And I agree, it's a barrier, but I don't think it's the barrier that's actually holding us back. What's holding us back is our mindset. I'm sure y'all are thinking, that's real easy for you to say, Lindsay, when you're being supported by your family right now. Fair enough. I admit that. But my dream to start my own business began when I was still working at a law firm. Because I knew I wanted to get out real bad. And I had been taking some online business and sales classes while I was still working at a law firm. I had actually planned to move to Austin, Texas and start my own business and continue to be married, but we saw how that turned out. And my plan at the time was to start a GoFundMe and literally appeal to my friends and family to help me start something. I've had friends who have done that before. I don't think it's a bad idea. Your friends and family want to see you succeed. 
And the financial advice that was good for our parents is not the financial advice that works for millennials. We were told that if we went to college, we would get a good paying job that would allow us to have a comfortable lifestyle, including home ownership. Now, I'm not saying that that hasn't worked out for some people in my generation, but that really depends on where you live in the country and the price of real estate where you live. But for the most part, the foolproof plan that we were given did not pay out the way we thought it was going to. The book states that the current state of things in our country is financially speaking, a hot fucking mess. Massive systems like the housing market, the student loan industrial complex, and the international supply chain have been going absolutely buck wild in a way that is truly unprecedented in our modern history. The rest of chapter one discusses why things right now are way different and way worse than they used to be and why so much of this conventional wisdom that we've received over the years, actually sucks. Like all things, I think we need to do some deep deprogramming of what we were taught and we can finally understand why the typical money wisdom really just doesn't apply and how we can start making intelligent, informed, rich bitch decisions. We will pick this back up next week, class. I would have been such a good fucking professor, let me tell you. I would bring snacks and treats. I would basically have like a captive audience to do a full set every class. So the dating apps aren't going that great. So I told y'all that I got in the locks club and it is exclusive, but I'm not really seeing anyone who I would get along with. I had one interesting encounter though. So on the app, you have to have your social media handle listed. So I guess I showed up on this one guy's feed on the app and he saw my social media. So then he went on Instagram, found me on social media and decided to message me. I I was like, I was kind of impressed at first. I was like, okay, here we go. Someone with some fucking initiative. He asked me what I was doing over the weekend and I was like, oh, I'm going to an arts festival. He was like, oh, I'm going to go. We should meet up. I told him that I was open to it. I'll admit I was hesitant. It wasn't a no for me, but I just didn't know anything about him. He had seen my profile, but I didn't have the benefit of seeing his profile. So all I knew about him was what was on his Instagram profile, which didn't get which didn't give me a lot to work with. Anyways, I asked him what he was looking for because I had just been on Tinder and everyone there wanted to hook up. He said he wanted a relationship, and I was like, okay, we're starting off on a good note here. So then I asked him what he's interested in and what he likes to do for fun. Pretty normal, basic question. Trying to get you to know you, dude. Fucking crickets. Fucking nothing. Saw my question like 15 minutes after I sent it and decided that he had seen enough to make a decision and homeboy was out. He fucking ghosted me. I have now been ghosted. Now, old Lindsay would have been very upset about this. She would have probably cried, had a little pity party, and would have invited self-doubt and self-hatred to come along. Not anymore, bitches. 
Now, I fully believe that this gentleman has made a grave error. He doesn't know what he's missing. And now, he's dead to me. You ghosted me? Say less. You are dead to me, sir. Don't try and write me again because I'll assume it's your ghost trying to contact me from the other side. And I don't date ghosts anymore. Boo, bitch. Kick rocks, Casper. What do y'all think the reason is that he ghosted me? I have theories. First theory, the good old insecurity of someone caring that I have a child. If that's the reason, then I'm glad he's gone. I've already forgotten his name. Second theory, he saw my videos on Instagram promoting my podcast and for some reason didn't like it. He's crazy because this is gold, honey. Anyways, it doesn't matter why. I don't even really fucking care. If you think I should have done something differently, text me at 504-224-9919. I will listen to your dating advice because it couldn't fucking hurt. The caliber of gentlemen on the locks club is much better than Tinder for sure. But let me tell you what, it is such a turnoff to see someone list themselves in a, as an attorney, but have spelling and grammatical errors in their bios. I mean, there are even spacing errors. I'm not usually a stickler for that kind of shit, but what else do you have to go on with a dating app? And you're a fucking attorney. Oh, I can't. Honestly, I've lost interest in the dating apps. I'm not impressed with the men I've seen on it. I haven't been asked on any dates. The only invitation that I received was an invitation for sex, to which I declined. Also, I've been really, really, really busy lately with my sewing class and dance class. I really love dance class. I can't wait to buy a skirt and some dance outfits. I may not be a dance expert, but damn it, I will look like one. Let's do a little Bravo roundup. Real Housewives of Potomac has returned after the break from the Super Bowl. It's pretty good. Okay, I like NECA, but she's clearly not a litigator. She couldn't hammer Wendy down on an answer to save her fucking life. Man, I would have deposed that bitch so fast to get my answer. Oh, I want to depose someone. I really tried hard to not ask deposition-worthy questions in parenting or in a relationship. But it's really hard to stop yourself from going into full cross-examining mode when you're trying to find something out. And it's hard to not go into investigator mode when you know how much shit is revealed from iPhones, iPads, Apple Watches, MacBooks, really anything that uses an Apple ID. I just was very underwhelmed with NECA's sit-down with Wendy and her inability to get answers. She must be a transactional attorney or something. Okay, Southern Hospitality is getting a reunion. I know that it already aired, but I haven't watched it. I'm so excited and it's really needed because we learned in the season finale that Maddie lied to everyone and actually knew about the phone call to the girl her boyfriend allegedly hooked up with. She made an ass out of herself at that house party. She's like, man, one thing about me is you know I'm going to fight. Girl, grow up. She's young, though, so I'm not going to hold it against her. At the end of the episode, we learned that three weeks after filming wrapped, Maddie and Trevor broke up. <gasps> Gasp. Shocked. Just kidding. Thank goodness. I will forever be haunted by him saying, 
get in my whip. Yikes, y'all. Yikes all around. The Beverly Hills finale was pretty damn good. I need Sutton's shoes that she wore to the white party. And good for her for buying herself a pair of $68,000 earrings. Sutton has really done a complete 180 in my book. She also has lost interest in the dating apps. And she says that she's going to date her business. And I fucking agree with that, Sutton. I'm going to take a page out of your book and I'm going to date my business too. So I need Sutton's shoes and I also need Garcelle's little feather frock that she wore to the white party. Man, Jeff Lewis was there with Cynthia Bailey. God bless him. I have loved seeing Erica Jane make her fucking comeback. She has real talent and she is fucking resilient. Let me say something though. I want to personally apologize to Kyle Richards. Because when the season first started, I definitely was speculating hard that her breakup with Mo was a publicity stunt. But after seeing the show, I do not believe that anymore. And I actually really relate to Kyle. Although we didn't have any of the same things happen, it's the same, like, feelings, you know? She said that she's wanting and needing more from her relationship with Mo and that she can't get it. She said that there are things that happen that made her lose her trust that she wasn't able to recover from. Man, Bravo really did it in at the end of the episode because they did a flashback to when Kyle and Mo went to Paris and put their names on a lock and locked it on that lock bridge. I think it's in Paris. Anyways, they didn't show this, but that bridge fucking collapsed a few years back because of the weight of all the locks of the people who had traveled there to put locks on the bridge. So now all those locks are at the bottom of a canal. And let's not forget Alison Dubois, who famously predicted that Kyle and Mo were not going to stay together and that he would never emotionally fulfill her. Know that. I'm sure it was very difficult to put so much of her breakup on TV. And she seems to really be going through a lot with her friend also committing suicide. So... I want to personally apologize to her because I was kind of a dick speculating so harshly that her relationship and the breakup was for the show. It's kind of funny that the person who has always taken care of everybody else finally says, I need someone to take care of me. And when your partner can't do that, what are your options? I get it. I get it, Kyle. And I wish you the best. I also saw a blind item, meaning that it hasn't been confirmed, saying that there is a couple that is about to announce that they are a couple via People Magazine, and it's going to be very shocking. And people are speculating that it is Kyle and her friend Morgan. Well, we'll just have to wait for that. I think I'm done with Vanderpump Rules, y'all. I'm sure most people know now that the New York Times recently published an article featuring the most hated man in America, Tom Sandoval. Sandoval was asked by the interviewer why he thought the scandal where he cheated on his girlfriend with her friend got so big. 
And Sandoval said, I'm not a pop culture historian, really, but I witnessed the O.J. Simpson thing and George Floyd and all these big things, which is really weird to compare this to that, I think. But do you think in a weird way it's a little bit the same? No. No, Sandoval, no. The audacity of this man. How dare he even compare the George Floyd murder to some reality TV cheating scandal? Not during Black History Month, sir. This reeks of privilege. I read the article, which was actually quite long, and I was going to do an entire analysis on it, but I don't want to give this man any more of my attention, so I don't think I'm going to talk about him on the podcast anymore, and I'm not watching Vanderpump Rules anymore. I think that's it. I'm washing my hands of it. So I would rather talk to y'all about the most ludicrous thing I've read in a while. New York City is suing social media platforms TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, and YouTube in the California Superior Court, alleging that they knowingly built and marketed their platforms to attract, capture, and addict youth. So I didn't read the entire lawsuit, which consists of 311 pages, but what the fuck is New York thinking? Teenagers aren't depressed and sad because of social media. I didn't even have social media when I was a teenager, and I was sad as fuck. Sad as fuck. We have a mental health crisis going on all around, and I don't think social media has anything to do with it. Oh, maybe we could point to that health insurance doesn't pay for you to have proper quality mental health care. Why don't we look at that? Why don't you sue the fucking health insurance companies saying y'all need to provide health insurance? This is such bullshit. This is such bullshit. Like, where is the scientific evidence? How in the fuck are y'all going to prove these claims? How in the fuck are y'all going to prove damages? Can I sue Sofia Vergara for being too fucking gorgeous and giving me a complex? It's affecting my mental health. I need some damages. I need $500,000 at least. I need $500 million at least. Doesn't that sound so stupid? These companies are platforms. The content is generated by the users, not the platforms. Are you suing them for their algorithm? That... Things are being shown to you of things that you actually like? Shit, we might just throw LinkedIn on there as well. That used to make me feel sad as shit when I was at my first job watching all these people get super lawyers and shit. I'm gonna need some money for that as well, y'all. Can I sue God? This is so dumb. All they want to do with this 300-page petition is get past the initial pleading stage so they can get into discovery. Did Oprah put y'all up to this? I find it so funny that social media is being attacked and that New York City is throwing all these resources behind this lawsuit. Money that could be used, oh, I don't know, to help the people of New York City? You want to know how to help your teen's mental health? Talk to them. It's not that hard, y'all. You just talk to him. Rather, you talk to them and you fucking listen. You shut up and you listen. Listen, Linda. (laughs) So I don't know if y'all know this, but some of my friends call me Linda. I can't remember how it started, but it fucking stuck. And I 
would like to introduce a recurring segment called Listen, Linda. Whether you have a burning question you need answered or you just want to tell me some crazy shit, it can be totally anonymous. But I feel like I got some real life experience under my belt. I practiced as a litigator for nearly a decade. I'm a mom to an 18 year old. I've been through the college process. I've been through high school process. Uh, what else we got? There's a lot of shit that I know about. I've seen some shit. So you can email me at therichroompodcast at gmail.com or text me at 504-224-991944. Listen, Linda. That's a wrap for this episode, y'all. Follow me at Lindsay underscore Sobel and also follow at The Rich Room Podcast. Ooh, manifest some shit with that full moon on Saturday. Bye, bitches. Yeah.